Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And glad you're with us. On the program this time, we return to the topic of other transaction agreements. Those are, of course, the increasingly popular mechanism the Defense Department has at its disposal to conduct research and development, and even in some cases to build actual production systems without going through the usual rules in the federal acquisition regulation. For the most part this week, we're turning the show over to my colleague Scott Bassioni. If you visited our website at all in the past couple weeks, you'll have seen the in-depth series he's just finished up on OTAs. It's called Danger at High Speed, and and I think it's really one of the most deeply reported pieces or, or, or series of pieces that's been done in the last few years on this issue. And for most of the program, we're going to hear from some of the acquisition experts Scott talked to during the reporting process for this series. But first, Scott is with us for a few minutes here in the studio to set the stage for what we're going to hear this hour. And Scott, we're going to hear from several of the acquisition experts that you talked to during the course of this hour, which is just a small sampling of uh, of the interviews that you did over what's really been a multi-month reporting project for you on OTAs. But just, just start us off by talking with us a little bit about what, to you, were the biggest takeaways from this project as you went in depth on, as you call it, the black box of OTAs. Yeah, right. Well, I think one of the, the biggest takeaways is that the transparency behind OTAs is really not there. It's an extremely opaque system right now where we, we can't even get the right numbers from DOD versus the federal procurement database system. So right now, the, the DOD reports that they have nearly $21 billion in OTAs over the past three years, while the federal procurement system database, they, they say that there's only $4.2 billion. So these discrepancies make it very hard for lawmakers, policymakers, industry people to keep up with OTAs and to uh, you know make sure that these things are being run in a way that is beneficial to the taxpayer. So why, where, where did this OTA craze come from in the first place? Part of it's Congress, obviously, but, but, but why, why the big uptick in use? Right. Well, the, the DOD sort of changed the way that it looks at war uh, when Secretary Mattis came in. And a little bit before that, uh, when it was under Secretary Carter, they realized that they were starting to fall behind a little bit on the technological side of things. And if you remember the third offset strategy under Secretary Ash Carter, which was looking into advanced technologies, making DOD and, and the United States better and, and more technologically superior than everyone else and keeping that technological edge. Well, in order to do that, they needed to buy weapons faster. And the, the procurement policy that they had right now just wasn't really working that well for them. It was very slow, clunky. It was hard to bring in new uh, innovative companies that they weren't used to working with. So these OTAs are very agile. They they don't really ask a lot of these, these companies. You know, it's just a sign on, just like a private business would. They just sign on, say, we want to do business with you and then get on with doing things. The problem is, is that it doesn't uh, make things very accountable, like I, I mentioned before. And to put a finer point on everything you just said, I think one of one of one of the ways members of Congress might put it is, and, and even DoD folks would be, look, China, Russia don't have to deal with the nuances and bureaucracy and paperwork burdens of the federal acquisition regulation. Uh, we do. If we keep doing things that way, we're just going to get outrun. Is that fair? 
Yeah, that, that's very fair. I mean, you, you know, you look at China and Russia, they're not so worried about how transparency is or how they can uh, save the taxpayers money like the uh, the United States does as a uh, Republican democracy. So uh, there's there's different uh, ways that they're sort of looking at, at this. And, and uh, China and Russia are probably growing while the United States has kind of slowed down in its growth a little bit. So those those things are uh, things that the United States military has to take into account. Yeah. And, and there's some variability in how much transparency there is, depending on what kind of OTA you're talking about. But as a general matter, let's just talk about the ways in which they're they're less transparent than a FAR-based contract. I mean, the, the obvious things to me are, one, generally the public doesn't see the solicitations or the calls for white papers that the government puts out. So we, we don't really know as a general public what, what the government is looking for. We also generally don't know when awards are even made. So we don't know when, when which company is picked for what, what particular piece of work which are both pretty critical things of an open and transparent procurement system. The one thing that I have still not been able to figure out as DOD has expanded its use of this OTA process is, is that lack of transparency, again, as a general matter, is that lack of transparency by design? Is it something that they feel needs to be in place to make the system work more quickly? Or is it just that transparency is an afterthought and they haven't figured out how to do these or put much attention into doing these in a transparent way so far. And I just wonder if you got any sense of that one way or the other as you went went about your reporting. Yeah, I didn't really get any official uh, sign on that. But, you know, as you look through it, I don't think that they're required for this transparency. And they're thinking, you know, we already deal with so much paperwork. We make our program managers do all these different things and jump through hoops. If we're doing something quickly, why should we add an extra uh, thing to this and start that whole process of building oversight on oversight on oversight and regulation on regulation again. And we're just getting back into that same uh, feedback loop again. So I think that maybe it's sort of like a, a culture change that they're trying to instill. And and the transparency issue, I, I don't think they're purposely, well, they might be purposely trying to hide some of it in order to uh, be able to negotiate more freely with companies so they can say, you know, you, you know, if you can provide this, we can do this for you and, and you know, maybe look the other way on, um, you know, reporting on something like, uh, you know, gender equality or, you know, other things like that. So, uh, you know, it's just a way to kind of maybe bring in other companies so they don't have to feel like they're under the microscope as much. And so a lack of transparency and so what? I mean, beyond the fact that people like you and me can't see what's going on within the OTA system, as you talk to experts, what were the the concerns about what the effects of a, a less than transparent system could be? Well, the real issues are how these programs, I mean, the DOD is not is very famous for having programs that run over cost, over schedule and uh, end up maybe even not working in the end and having to deal with cancellation fees. I think that's the biggest fear is wasting taxpayers money and wasting the the time of uh, of program managers, of people that could be working on, on much more productive things. And, uh, you know, the, the Futures Combat System was a perfect example that uh, the Project on Government Oversight has been sort of talking about, which is they, they used this this big thing back in the mid-2000s to late-2000s where the Army was spending billions of dollars and ended up not even finishing this contract and wasting a lot of money. Not to mention on top of that, but, you know, the government ends up kind of giving this corporate welfare to these companies and paying for all their mistakes when the government itself, uh, you know, should be doing something productive for the taxpayers with that money. 
And Scott, I thought one of the most interesting parts of your series was the history you went into, because just about a decade ago, as we sit here now, DOD folks were being called up to Capitol Hill to explain what they'd been doing on OTAs for the previous decade, right? So we've been down this road in some ways before. That's right. And it's almost exactly the same sort of reasoning. They wanted to bring in more non-traditional companies. But once Congress started looking into it, they found 72 percent of research contracts or research agreements and 97 percent of prototype agreements went to traditional contractors. So they weren't bringing in anyone different, just giving out money faster to these traditional uh, companies. And, uh, you know, the, the DOD inspector general got involved saying that, you know, cost saving metrics need to be implemented. They need to look at these things. They need transparency. And um, so it just kind of went to this whole sort of pendulum swing where it started off very loose and then Congress tightened things up in the mid 2000s. Now we're seeing the pendulum swing the other way back into looser OTA standards, even looser than they ever were in the 1990s and mid 2000s. All right. Federal News Radio Scott Massioni talking with us about his new series, Danger at High Speed, OTAs in Action is the title. Great job in the series, Scott. Thanks for coming on to talk with us about it. Thank you. Short break here, and then we'll start digging into some of the interviews Scott did as part of the reporting process for this series. Angela Stiles, former administrator at the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, is first up when we come back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Servid. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And again, on this week's show, we're spotlighting the reporting series that's up now on federalnewsradio.com by my colleague Scott Massioni, all about the Pentagon's increasing use of other transaction agreements. Scott talked to a number of officials, former officials, and acquisition experts to report out that series. We're going to hear from a few of them today. First up, Scott's conversation with Angela Stiles, former administrator at the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, now a partner at the Bracewell Law Firm. It's like contracting with no rules. So, you know, there are a lot of rules surrounding federal contracts, and there's a lot of rules um, surrounding federal grant money and how both are done. And so OTAs were originally created quite some time ago. Um, I think it might have been originally NASA. But, you know, certain agencies have had some historic authority to enter into these types of transactions on a limited basis for research and development and the development of prototypes. Um, The theory behind it has been that a lot of times it's hard to get the type of companies that do that R&D to the table if you're going to require them to have all of the terms and conditions of a normal federal contract or a normal federal grant. And so, but Congress has been um, very limited in, until the past couple of years, for DOD in particular, in the use of the authority, and opened it up, as you've seen in the, in the past couple of defense authorizations, to more than just research and development or prototypes. And, you know, DOD has been taking advantage of it. I think it may be more of a, a symptom than it is the fix, if you will, so... The the problem is that the procurement system itself is really clunky at this point in time, I mean, particularly for DOD. I mean, you know, for years and years, Congress puts on more rules and regulations and 
um, it a, makes the products and services more expensive, and it also repels, if you will, some of the companies that DOD wants to work with, probably needs the technology from. And so, you know, I think that's why Congress finally, well, it's either that or some of the people left that were really anti the expansion of OTAs, because there's a lot of risk to having no rules. I mean, there's no rules for competition. There's no, you know, protests of them. I mean, none of the things that you would consider just a regular day-to-day oversight of them. I mean, there's nothing that really says they have to be reported other than what may be in the statute for reporting them. There's nobody that knows how to manage them. There's nobody that knows what the terms and conditions should be. So um, it's a completely unknown world, with, but with the benefit of, you know, allowing easier access to products and services for the Department of Defense. So it's likely, I mean, they're they're happy about it. There are a lot of companies that are probably overwhelmingly happy about it, but we'll never get to take the advantage of them, I think. Right. So, you know, a lot of people would love to not have any rules or regulations or contract terms um, for how the Department of Defense purchases from them. Um, you know, the the use has been even criticized, I think, in some of the larger um, uses that DOD has contemplated that if, you know, become, come out publicly. So, um, you know, I, I think... It'll be hard for DOD to use it too extensively without Congress coming back and saying, oh, yeah, I guess there's a reason that we were so constrained in it in the past. So, I mean, I think there's, there's, it's going to have its limitations of its own uh, because, look, if one company gets an OTA and it's not competed and there's no terms and conditions and there's no way to protest it, there are going to be a lot of companies that aren't happy. And, I mean, were there certain companies or certain people that you felt were pushing for this? I, I think it, it mostly came through between 2012 and 2016. You know, I don't really know who, I mean, I think DOD was pushing for it. I mean, yeah. I think the problem is, is is they do have a really overbearing procurement system at this point in time. I mean, it's mystifying to me. I mean, even just buying commercial items is really clunky and really hard to buy and all kinds of terms and conditions both imposed by Congress and, frankly, self-imposed by the Department of Defense themselves. Um, and so, you know, they've, they've made things hard on themselves, and Congress has made things hard on themselves for them to purchase. And so it's an outlet, if you will. It's a, it's a way to actually get some of the things that they need uh, without going through all the uh, hoops, if you will. Now, as far as OTAs that have been awarded, or I guess you could call them awarded, um, have are, are you aware of any that um, actually go to non-traditional companies? I mean, you know, is this working the way that they want it to work, or is it ending up in the the hands of primes or semi, you know, like subprime companies? You know, it's hard to know because there's not uh, a lot of reporting for it, if you will. And so all all I read about is what I read about in the press, and that certainly concerns me that it goes to a non-traditional contractor and then the non-traditional contractor subbing large amounts out to a larger company that is a traditional contractor. Um, what about the consortiums? Um, you know, would you mind kind of giving me an idea of maybe how they work and, and how transparent they are and, and how those agreements work with DOD? Well, a lot of times they're really good. So they're, a lot of the consortiums are are put together to work on some pretty complex problems. So you could have a consortium that's trying to come up with um, a lighter weight metal for um, 
DOD planes and things like that, or missiles, or, uh, you know, better type of, you know, Kevlar, or things like that. I mean, you, you can have consortiums that come together um, to, to pool, if you will, resources on advancing um, the technology, right? So people come to the table with their own technology, and they have agreements about how they're going to share things that are created, and then they enter into um, another transaction with the Department of Defense that's really on behalf of the court consortium, if you will. Um, they're not new. I mean, there's other ways that DOD has done this in the past. I mean, they'll have more traditional contracts that will go to the consortium, and then the consortium kind of figures out how to parse out the money, if you will, or even DOD will parse out the money um, to different consortium members, but there's a lot of collaboration collaboration and working together on advancing the research, if you will. And, I mean, they're, 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 um, they're not new. They're fairly complex in their working model, but, but they're really good in terms of having different sectors. So you can have academia, um, you can have big companies, you can have new and innovative companies, and the federal government all really working together towards some common kind of research goals, if you will, that allows the technology to transfer out to um, the private sector and academia as well, and for the government to be able to use it. So, a lot, you know, I've seen really positive use of it. I mean, when they come together in that fashion, when it really is, a, you know, a common goal from a research uh, and development perspective, it really can move the ball pretty far. So one of the things that interests me about this is that you hardly feel hear any negative things about OTAs because it's always, you know, NDIA, Professional Services Council, is everyone's pushing it and they're like, this is an amazing thing. This is great. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. And, and so that was what kind of gave me a little uneasiness about it. Um, Not to say that it's not good or anything, but, you know, I just kind of wanted to get the other side of the coin. So uh, would you mind maybe telling me what some of the potential issues might be if OTAs were to be abused, um, how they might be able to be abused by primes or by non-traditional contractors? Sure. So they're not transparent. They don't require cost accounting. Um, there's, you know, there, there aren't rules. So federal contracts have a lot of important rules that are attached to them, right? That the government gets a fair price, um, that, uh, there's certain IP rights that the government retains, that, um, you know, there's certain audit rights that the government automatically gets. None of those have to apply. I mean, the government can put them in if they want to, and the companies agree to them. Um, you can put in whatever you want to. I mean, there really are literally no standardized terms or conditions, which means that, you know, in the wrong hands, right, a company could take advantage of it. Um, you could end up got getting the best companies to perform because you're not going out to the marketplace and competing these OTAs. You're just going to a company and you're signing an OTA with them. And so, I mean, it, it all of the protections that are put in place in the federal procurement system, clunky, bulky, whatever you want to call them, right, are there for a reason. Things have happened in the past, and OTAs take all of that away, right? And so for all the reasons that you want to make sure that, you know, the federal government is properly spending taxpayer dollars is why the, is the reason that you have all of the rules and regulations in place, right? So while you can see that there is... Um, a reason you would want to bring non-traditional companies to the table and there would there are appropriate uses of OTAs it's just something that you always have to keep an eye on because you don't want OTAs to overtake the procurement system and you know and when you when you have people out there cheering really loud yeah <laughs> Uh, you, you know, you're like, why are you cheering so loud? I mean, of course, if you're a company, you would rather have no rules, you know, so. Yeah. If you win, if you're the winner, right? 
That's Angela Stiles, former administrator at the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, talking with Federal News Radio Scott Massioni. That's one of the interviews Scott recorded as part of Federal News Radio series on other transaction agreements called Danger at High Speed. We'll continue with another one of those conversations after another quick break. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Servid. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. A special edition of the show this week as we highlight a new reporting series by my colleague Scott Massioni, focusing on other transaction authorities in DOD. These are some of the conversations Scott recorded with acquisition experts as part of that series called Danger at High Speed. Next up, David Berto. He's a former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics and Material Readiness, now the president of the Professional Services Council. There's really two reasons why the government uses OTA, right? And, and those reasons, one of the, they, they both are relevant in terms of why the recent surge. The first reason, uh, and this is the reason it was created all the way back in the 1950s in the Space Act and why it was expanded for use uh, in, in DOD both in the 90s and more recently through legislation, is that the government's not quite sure how to define its requirements and what they want is the flexibility to be able to engage with companies to produce to, to pursue ideas and produce prototypes or, or uh, uh, samples of a, of a process improvement or a technology improvement um, before the government can actually define it so precisely that it makes it easier to use normal acquisition procedures. So that's the first area, and, and that area, I think, has expanded a lot over the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years because so much innovation in both process and in technology is occurring in areas where it's not funded by either federal research and development dollars or by companies doing work on behalf of the federal government uh, to do that development and, and that design and, and that new technology uh, research and development. In fact, instead, it's coming from the commercial marketplace and it's not being driven by federal research dollars or even federal requirements, right? And so part of the reason that you see the expansion of the use of OTA and the greater interest in OTA is I'm in the government. How do I access that stuff that the rest of the world is getting? And, uh, and how do I do it in a timely way? Because the, which gets to the second reason. The second reason is that the view is, and the data support this view, that it takes a long time to go from concept to signed contract following the normal acquisition procedures. There's just a lot of steps involved. There's a lot of checks and, and reviews that have to be done. And there's a lot of waiting in line for your turn to be checked and reviewed. Right? So uh, that, that whole system of following the normal federal acquisition uh, process tends to be seen as, and in most cases it is, both time-consuming and the amount of time involved in doing that, both pre-solicitation and after solicitation has been issued and proposals have come in and are being evaluated, those timelines probably are getting longer. I say probably because, just as an aside, we don't have a well-defined set of measures of the amount of time it takes to go from idea to contract, 
nor does DOD or any other federal agency apply those measures in a way that um, it, the data become available to us publicly. So we can extrapolate from that, and we have a lot of anecdotes from member companies who say, yeah, it's taking longer, right? Um, but the reality is there's no common set of data that the government reports on acquisition lead time, either pre-solicitation or, or post-solicitation. But let's assume that the perception is the reality and, uh, and that people think it's taking even longer. So that's the second reason why OTA is attract more attractive because you can go faster. Right? Now, those two reasons don't necessarily uh, – aren't necessarily in, in contradiction with one another. You could very well have – I need the flexibility to be able to go up, find out what's out there and have somebody build some prototypes and let me try them out a little bit before I define what my requirements are. Um, with the it takes too long to use a normal process to do that. So the two can actually fit together. But in many cases, I think what we're seeing is uh, one or the other, but not both of those reasons are, the, are, are behind the growth in OTA and the application of OTA. So how far can an OTA contract go? Can I take it all the way through full production? Or at what point would it start being regulated by the FAR? Um, we're still learning the answer to that question in, in reality, but the, the technical legal uh, standard is that you can, in fact, go well beyond a prototype uh, and, and actually buy a production item. Uh, there's some question as to whether you could buy the sustainment the services necessary to support that going forward. We don't have a lot of examples of OT used for, uh, for sustainment or, or services support contracts. Um, and, and I think we're still candidly uh, feeling out the edges of the boundaries of this. And as you know, the history is, is, is not uniform in this regard. Um, the uh, Army uh, used uh, other transaction authority uh, to spend billions of dollars on the future combat system uh, back in the last decade. And, uh, um, and those, those were eventually going to become production items. Uh, as it turns out, none of those platforms ever actually got to the point of full-scale production. Uh, and so the, the, the theory of how far you can take an OT was not tested uh, as part of the FCS process. But I think the, the other aspect to it is not just what's legal, but what's practical, right? And, and the practicality of using uh, uh, other transaction authority to, uh, to buy a long-term support of a program of record of, you know, dozens or hundreds or thousands of a particular platform in any given year. Um, it's very difficult to see that sustained over the period of time necessary to actually field something. You know, the Joint Light Tactical Vehicle, for example, the Army's new uh, replacement for the Humvee uh, utility vehicle. Um, the Army's going to be buying that for 30 years. And so to use uh, something like other transaction authority probably wouldn't give you the continuity and the stability of both uh, control of the, of the uh, deliverables themselves and of being able to integrate that into the Army system. So uh, more than likely, there's a limit, a practical limit, as well as a statutory limit there. But we haven't found that limit yet. When it comes to OTA contracts, there's a requirement that there should be at least one non-traditional company in there. How do we know that the non-traditionals are actually being involved, and this just isn't a way for traditional companies to get on contract faster? You know, I actually haven't seen uh, data that reports subcontract dollar flows that go through this, but I suspect those, the, the data are out there. I haven't looked for them, so I don't know that they're not there. Um, but give the, you know, it, it is possible for uh, um, primes to have a, an OTA uh, agreement without, uh, um, uh, without a, a, a non-traditional partner. Uh, they just have to pay 
30% of the cost. There has to be a cost-sharing piece that pays 30% of the cost. So it's not practical for them to do so uh, as part of that process. Um, and, and, you know, you raise a good question there that, frankly, Scott, I, I don't know the answer to. You know, who audits this stuff? And, and what, are they, what are they basing that audit on? Uh, when you don't have, uh, you know, the, the traditional reporting requirements uh, that come into play. Um, and, and I think we're too early in the, in the recent surge of, of uh, use of OT to, uh, to know the answer to those questions. It's a great question. Getting back to consortia, what's the actual purpose of those? Is it to help non-traditional companies pair with traditional companies? Or, you know, what is the actual purpose of them? I think there's three purposes. I think one is as you describe it, right? The, the consortium actually creates a framework by which companies, particularly non-traditional companies, can participate in the process uh, without having to create that framework on their own, right? And, and so you've got both a standardized framework and an easier way to plug in. You can plug in through a consortium. I think the second advantage is that it actually provides a, a framework for, for the government to have ongoing discussions and dialogues um, uh, in advance of actually getting the sort of white papers that get submitted through the consortium that would lead to an agreement being uh, being signed and, and issued. So you can actually have an iterative process of dialogue to refine what it is the government's looking for uh, in accordance with what it is the companies can actually provide. And the consortium gives you a framework to have that dialogue um, that is both safer and potentially more productive than the typical contract negotiation process. And then the third is it actually creates a, a, a management structure um, that uh, relieves the government of responsibility for, for doing a lot of the back and forth of, uh, uh, of, of you know, submission of white papers, et cetera. So the consortium itself can end up actually improving both the nature of the submissions that come into the government uh, from a particular uh, other transaction opportunity uh, and the, the um, breadth of, of uh, proposals that will come in so the government will give the maximum value and exposure to the kinds of technologies that might be out there to move forward. I might point out that using other transaction authority for services as opposed to products is a lot less frequent. And, uh, you know, certainly from the point of view of the members, member companies of the Professional Services Council, uh, something that's of great interest. Now, you know, if you're buying, you know, data services or cloud services or technology services uh, through another transaction authority, um, you're not actually buying a thing. You're actually buying, you know, a set of processes and process innovation and process improvement. Um, I think that has an enormous potential, but I don't think it's been used very much. So I think it raises uh, all the questions you've raised take a slightly different cast if you look at it from the point of view of services as opposed to products. When it comes to the amount of work that a non-traditional has to do, is there any sort of benchmark on that? Or could they just come up with an idea and pass it off to Lockheed to finish out the rest of it and do everything for them? Well, that's a, there's no requirement, and, and frankly, the more you start putting those kinds of requirements in, the more you turn other transaction authority back into normal FAR-based contracting, right? Um, so you, you've got you've to start thinking very carefully about what your objectives are before you make the process uh, uh, change that would be implied there. But I think that uh, one of the opportunities and perhaps one of the responsibilities of a consortium as part of this regard is, you know, if uh, you could easily see a small company that would uh, be very good at building a prototype but don't have anywhere near the track record, the capability, the capacity, uh, or, or the, uh, the size, uh, the scale, to be able to move it into production, right? So there would be some benefit uh, in having partners along the way. 
I don't see a lot of places where that's necessarily a requirement uh, because I, I think at the time you're actually soliciting uh, the input for the prototype, you don't actually even know yet what, if anything, you're ever going to build that because you don't know how the prototype's going to perform. So I don't think it's, it's done ahead of time, but I think the idea of the consortium is it, it can provide a smoother transition, a smoother path forward uh, for, for doing that. And there are plenty of examples throughout uh, you know, the last 20, 30, 40 years where uh, people have been really good at designing the, the uh, idea and developing the idea and creating a prototype, uh, and they're lousy at going into production because that's not what they do. And so I think having both sides of that as part of the calculus up front is a good idea. I know PSC has been a fan of OTAs. Did you work with any of the lawmakers on this legislation? What made Congress feel like OTAs would actually work? And do you know who pushed to make OTAs part of the legislation? We've we've had we've had a number of interactions with Congress, both uh, orally and, and in writing, over the past few years as they've revised and updated the the, regu- the, statu- the statutes that govern this. And I think our, our focus is on three things there. Number one, back to the uh, original intent of other transactions, which is to allow the government to get at um, ideas, innovation both uh, technical innovation, process innovation, systems innovation, that they're not quite sure what they want to buy yet. So there's real value there. We're a little more concerned about using other transaction authority as just a mechanism of circumventing the lengthy processes involved in in following the FAR and the various uh, supplements to the FAR to go through the contracting process. Because our view is if you're going to try to fix contracting and make it more streamlined, more efficient, more effective for some, you really should do that for everybody because you really shouldn't do it just for the 3 or 5 or 10% of research and development money that gets spent through other transactions authorities. So let's not use this as a mechanism to circumvent things that we actually instead ought to be fixing. And then, and then the third is you have to pay very close attention to is the government getting what it needs here? And and in the end, you're not doing this just for the sake of moving money to somebody. You're doing it in order to satisfy government needs. And, and you know, other transactions authorities particularly good at trying to identify what can satisfy a need when we don't have the need well-defined yet. Once you get to the point where the need is very well-defined and it can be provided by, you know, contractors who are available to do that sort of work, you probably ought to move away from OTA and move back to normal contracting process in order to do that. David Berto is the president of the Professional Services Council, talking there with Federal News Radio Scott Massioni, one of many interviews Scott did as part of our special series on federalnewsradio.com, all about other transaction authorities called Danger at High Speed. One last break, and when we come back, we'll hear from Scott Amy, the general counsel at the Project on Government Oversight. This is on DOD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbid. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And on this week's program, we're hearing some of the interviews Federal News Radio's Scott Massioni did as part of his series, Danger at High Speed, about DOD's increasing use of other transaction agreements. This last conversation we're going to feature is with Scott Amy, the general counsel at the Project on Government Oversight, or POGO. Congress has been on quite a mandate here to increase competition and innovation and speed up the the process and so uh, they've they've tackled that by you know trying to expand the use of the commercial item procurements and they also have uh, expanded the use of the other transaction 
authority to uh, try to get the Department of Defense to move along a little faster with more innovation in trying to lower, you know, one of the old promises was always that other transaction authority would bring in non-traditional contractors and that they always thought that getting more uh, people around the table and bringing innovative solutions to government procurement issues would be helpful in staying, you know, ahead of, uh, you know, enemies out there and bringing the latest technologies and innovations uh, to the federal government uh, workplace. What made Congress feel like OTAs would actually work, and do you know who pushed to make OTAs part of the legislation? Well, I'm sure the contractors have. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there have been, always been some major concerns with the use of other transaction authority. Um, you know, I think we testified on, you know, on problems with this in front of Senator McCain when he was chairman of Senate Armed Services, you know, back in about 2005 on, you know, the fact that uh, the, this procurement vehicle is, can be problematic that in, in essence it, it creates a problem for the government because they don't always know what they're buying um, and it allows contractors just to come kind of approach them with, let me sell you this idea. And we also were very concerned with uh, you know, the, the lack of transparency, the lack of competition, and the lack of accountability that happens you know, when you uh, operate under uh, other transaction authority. And, you know, one of the main concerns is these types of agreements don't operate under the federal acquisition regulations. And there are, you know, numerous, uh, you know, contracting provisions that don't apply uh, with these. And so that always creates some problems uh, and creates a risk that uh, we're going to be subject to waste, fraud, and abuse you know, when this contracting vehicle is used. And uh, I think a lot of the move has come from contractors, that they are pushing for these, because if they can get out of the 1,900 pages of the FAR, they're more than glad to do that. And I think they've been able to uh, convince uh, certain members of uh, the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee that this is kind of the wave of the future and uh, will be helpful in speeding up uh, the procurement process in giving the Department of Defense the competitive advantage that it needs over uh, other countries out there that, you know, are challenging for, you know, and and presenting innovative uh, defense solutions. As someone who investigates these kinds of things, what issues have you run into trying to find out about OTAs? Well, I I mean, it is a little more difficult. Um, Some of the information does get entered into the, you know, federal acquisition uh, databases out there. Um, I know for a fact that, like, I've run some searches on other transaction authority and its use um, in in the federal procurement data system, um, and you can do some drill down there and try to f- figure out some more information about these. But you know, it's not as transparent as you know the award of uh, federal government contract, and so it does kind of uh, create some hindrances to learning more information about them. And so we have seen a lot of stories written recently about the increased use of other transaction authority and I think my numbers kind of track that these have really you know increased dramatically and we're you know now up to about you know 2.3 billion dollars worth of spending and you know that doesn't seem like a lot um, in in, the, in the, <laughs> I say that it obviously is a lot you know 2.3 billion dollars is a lot of money um, but in, at the end of the day, when you're talking about, you know, if contracts 
are now back over $500 billion annually. Um, uh, that two, you know, 2.3 billion isn't a heck of a lot of money, but uh, you know, we have seen a dramatic increase in the use of OTAs um, in the recent past, and I think we're going to see that skyrocket here as uh, DoD is going to start using it uh, a lot more than they have in the past. What concerns do you have about consortiums and how they may be used to hide money or even act as middlemen for these these companies? Well, I don't know. I you know I haven't I haven't seen anything in examples come in. So I you know it's just kind of reading tea leaves. But you know you do worry at the you know at the end of the day is that you know the general in, intent here was to to use these um, you know to bring in non traditional contractors. And I you know I, I am concerned. I mean there have been reports in the past. DoD has done a very decent job in the past when GAO and some IGs have looked at other transaction authority in uh, using it and luring in non-traditional contractors. In the past, DOD wasn't as successful, and I believe you know, it goes back years, but you know, it was 70 or 80% of all OTAs were being awarded to traditional contractors. And so you know, it seemed as if in those cases that we were just trying to circumvent the, the contracting rules and regulations. And so um, you know, I would worry that you have some of consortiums there that, uh, that would, be, would be created to kind of bring in some non-traditional contractors, but then the bulk of the work would be doing, done by the traditional contractors, and therefore, uh, you know, you, you wonder if, we're, you know, if that was then the, the appropriate approach to use in, in procuring, you know, that, you know, that, that R&D or the prototype or now, you know, with the expansion into production OTAs, you know, you do have some questions on whether this was just a way to kind of circumvent the contracting rules and regulations and uh, use OTAs and some non-traditional contractors as a way to, you know, seize an opportunity uh, without going having to go through uh, the normal contracting process. DOD always makes a big deal that China and Russia are on our tail, that we need to move quickly. Um, can DOD move through traditional rules to actually procure things that they need without having to go through the OTA route and still stay competitive? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I think there are emergency procurement authorities that uh, would allow the government to still, you know, act quickly. Um, but in these instances, I think because so much of it was tied to R&D and prototyping, that there were some real questions on whether people, whether contractors were willing to make that investment without some kind of agreement to do so and government backing. And so I think, you know, there is... You know, there certainly are some benefits to, to OTAs, but I'm always afraid that, uh, uh, you know, we're using them for the wrong purposes and with, uh, you know, the lack of transparency, the lack of accountability, the lack of competition, and now that we're moving into production OTAs, that, you know, we have to seriously consider how we're using them, whether we're using them as intended, whether we're getting the goods and services that we, you know, really want and need, and, uh, and whether, you know, we're getting them at the best, you know, costs and prices and that we're just not using this contracting or the, this procurement vehicle um, as a way just to circumvent the rules and kind of uh, have contractors kind of not have the oversight and administration that they need um, to hold them accountable. Uh, I, I just worry that this is going to result in a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse in the future. You know, we've already seen that actually with you know the future combat systems. You know, it was an army program that began in the early 2000s. 
you know, uh, that was questioned. There were a lot of inquiries. That project was eventually, program was canceled. Um, I believe it was in about 2009. And, you know, you do worry about the cost and the cancellation fees that went along with that. And so, you know, that was kind of the, I think, the, the, the poster example for a, a program that wasn't r- run very well. And you do worry about that in some other places, uh, you know, as we move forward. And, you know, we need to make sure that there's proper oversight and administration over these programs to make sure that we're getting the, you know, the, the, the bang for the buck that we need and that these aren't programs that are just, you know, promises, oh, we can promise you X, Y, and Z, and at the end of it, you may end up with Q, and we've wasted a lot of money. That's Scott Amy, the general counsel at the Project on Government Oversight, talking with Federal News Radio Scott Massioni, one of many interviews Scott did as part of our series, Danger at High Speed, exploring the Pentagon's increasing use of OTAs. If you haven't read it, it's at federalnewsradio.com, and it's definitely worth your time if you're interested in this issue. That's going to do it for this week's edition of On DoD. Thanks, as always, for joining us. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.